Welcome to Knowing Nature, a podcast about environmental education. I'm your host, Victor. In this show, I speak with other educators about their practices and perspectives on helping others connect with the natural world. In this episode, I'm speaking with Scott Markowitz, president of the Tahoma Audubon Society, an organization dedicated to the appreciation and protection of birds and their habitats. Scott and I discuss community or citizen science projects with some thoughts on different ways people can get involved. We also share perspectives on reducing conflict between different sorts of bird watchers. Finally, Scott and I discuss bird feeding in the context of a recent avian salmonella outbreak among pine siskin in the American Pacific Northwest, which led to some advice to actually take down bird feeders in the early part of 2021. On with the episode. Audubon societies are organizations dedicated to the protection of birds and their habitats. There are local societies and a national organization based in the United States, all named after John James Audubon. John Audubon was born in Haiti in 1785, and he would later move to America where he became a naturalist, ornithologist, and a painter. John Audubon is probably best known for his monumental book, The Birds of America, which consisted of 435 life-size prints of nearly 500 North American bird species. These prints were based on Audubon's observations out in the field and on taxidermy specimens collected by fellow ornithologists. Audubon is not without some controversy, with studies suggesting he may have falsified some of his scientific data, and he also wrote against the abolition of slavery, himself buying and selling slaves before moving to England, where he worked on getting Birds of America published. Still, When Audubon died in 1851 at the age of 65, he had left a strong mark upon ornithology and natural history. Birds of America is a massive work which inspired many to become naturalists themselves. In 1905, the Audubon Society was incorporated and named in his honour. Its mission to conserve and restore natural ecosystems focusing on birds. The charity protects significant bird habitats and migration routes across the United States and has contributed to bird rescue efforts following environmental disasters such as oil spills. Joining me today is president of the Tahoma Audubon Society, my good friend, Scott Markowitz. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hi, Victor. It's great to be here. Thanks. Before we jump into talking about the Tahoma Audubon Society and the work that it does, it's always nice to get to know our guests a little bit. So could you tell us about yourself and how you got into conservation and science? I know that you started out in education and you've had a bit of a winding path to to end up where you are. I think the winding path is probably um, a very accurate description. I think my connection to nature started when I was a kid. I grew up on a farm in New England. My parents, my dad in particular, was very, very connected with nature and with being outside. And so we used to do a lot of walking and exploring and hiking and living the outdoor life. And I think it's difficult to spend so much time outside without it starting to sort of rub off and, and become a part of who you are. And I've always been fascinated by, you know, living things outside. And I think the more time you spend watching nature and observing nature and seeing nature, you know, with your own experience, um, it becomes more real and it becomes more a part of who you are as a person. And I think once you're connected, you're always connected. It's it's something that the connection only grows deeper. So uh, I, I went into education because I thought at one point that if you really wanted to make a difference in the world, the way to do it was to, to share what you know with others and, and to share the joy of learning. It's not just what I know 
as a person, but it's, it's, it's what we all can learn together. That's what makes education so great. And what makes the teachers that I've had that I've really connected with and that have really connected with me so special. You've moved from the education space a, a bit more towards the conservation and, and science space, which is an interesting trajectory to me because I think a lot of people in environmental education come at it from either having a, a science background, an environmental science background, or, or life science background of some kind, and then they kind of move into environmental or outdoor education. Um, you also have educators who move into outdoor and environmental education, but I don't think many of them then make the next step into environmental science, um, which you kind of have. So how, how have you find that experience? I never could have predicted this path for myself, but I always wanted to be a scientist. I really did. The problem is, is that I got accelerated in, in the math course in school and got a little too far ahead and ended up with a couple of teachers who maybe didn't quite understand that, that you know, my maturity wasn't quite where my mathematical understanding was at the time. And so there was a disjoint and I, I started to struggle and pretty quickly came to the conclusion, as a lot of 13-year-olds do, you know, I'm not able to do Algebra 2. I must not be good at math. Oh, I can't do math. I can't do science. And so I drifted away, got into journalism, where, uh, where I ended up circling back and getting a chance to participate in, in real field science was when I came to the Wetland Center in London. I was still uh, doing a bit of photojournalism. And um, at one point, uh, somebody suggested that I go out with the bird bander on site, Bill Haynes, to take some photos of the bird banding process that, that might be useful. And uh, I went out with Bill uh, one morning and took some pictures and we hit it off and, um, and realized that that was something I could do, especially because, you know, Bill was, was operating, you know, a fairly large operation and having somebody who could, you know, push the cart and carry the poles and tie the knots and, um, you know, just take some of the physical burden off was going to be really useful. And so, you know, we hit it off and I said, Hey, I mean, I'll come out and help you. We got on well. And after a while he suggested I, I do the, you know, the training, I was able to, to, to do field science. And I mean, I didn't even realize it at the time. I just kind of thought of myself as the guy who carried the poles and tied the knots. But then before I knew it, I was measuring birds and collecting data, you know, that, that got my curiosity going and I was able to actually do some field science that became a regular part of my life, you know, really learning a lot about birds. And then of course the curiosity starts to set in. So you got into bird bending without having like a, you know, degree in environmental science, kind of that kind of background, but you were still able to do proper data collection. You still needed the training course, but it isn't a full like degree program. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. You can get involved in a lot of science without needing necessarily to go down that route. Like there are alternative routes available. You know, here at, at Audubon, we call that community science. It used to be called citizen science, but, you know, community science is now our preferred term for it. Um, I just did a presentation for Audubon about community science and about some of the community science opportunities that Tahoma Audubon offers in our area, um, which are exactly that. They're opportunities for people who may or may not have uh, hard science backgrounds to participate in data collection. Community science allows data to be collected beyond the scope of say, funded science or, or organized science. You know, if you take the Christmas bird count that Audubon puts on or um, bird banding, a lot of which is done, or bird ringing, which is done by volunteers, 
there's a lot more data that can be collected and a lot more data that can be analyzed. One example where this really comes to play is that right now with the Puget Sound Bird Observatory, we have a lot of data that we've collected for a couple of different projects and we have, we have a vast amount of data. What we really need is a statistician, you know, or an accountant, even somebody who doesn't necessarily have an education in statistics, but somebody who understands, you know, the basics or how to operate R, for example, which is a great software for, for statistical analysis, because we need to do statistical analysis and our field biologists maybe aren't the ones who um, have the best background to do that, or maybe they do, but they don't have the time, you know, so this is an opportunity for, um, you know, our, our local accountant to become involved. And I think that this is a case where community science really is strong in being able to reach out to people who may not otherwise have the traditional backgrounds like myself um, and to be able to get people involved. That's something that I hadn't really considered that much actually before is that there's a lot of lots of different ways of, of collecting that information. Then you've got the, the other side of what do you do with actually processing it. And there's a lot of people out there who would be perfectly happy to do, you know, manual data entry <laughs> as a volunteer because you feel like you're contributing to something you know that's something that i've been doing at the natural history museum um over the last couple of years is just helping out in one of the curators and very menial tasks but i'm happy to contribute my partner as a hobby for for a little while one of the things he was doing was taking birth records and just sort of transcribing them and cleaning up data from things and because his background is computer science and so his way of like, oh, I want to contribute to this effort is I'm going to help clean up this data because that's what I know how to do. So I think that's something a lot of organizations can learn from is just don't be afraid to go beyond like send us your photos of this thing. Yeah, well, I, I agree. And I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, because, um, you know, the um, uh, part of the discussion that we had when we were talking about community science versus traditional science was that uh, our traditional scientists who were participating in that conversation felt that, um you know, it's it's the quality of the data collected really, really matters. And I think nobody, I don't think there's anybody who would disagree with that. So what, what the, the conversation kind of moved into was um, how you train your people to collect your data and that you can really train just about anyone to be able to collect the data at a very, very significant level. Just because someone has a degree in field biology does not necessarily mean that they can identify a chiff chaff by call but you may have the little lady down the street who spent her life working for the postal service who can identify chiff chaffs, but she can also identify, you know, night jars and, and every single shorebird that ever flew over England, you know, by their pip calls in the middle of the night while she's in bed. And that person's knowledge set is going to be so much more valuable, even though she doesn't have a degree, she doesn't have any degree, but she spent the years investing the effort to really, really learn the, um, the identification that is necessary to give quality data. And so what you have to do is you have to train, you know, people like that who maybe have the knowledge base, but maybe don't have the understanding or the skill to record the data or, um, you know, to get that data submitted to where it needs to go so that that analysis can happen. One of the projects that we have here is um, uh, the Secret of Wetland Bird uh, Survey, where we're actually um, identifying and surveying things like bittern, and uh, a lot of the different rails that, that you might bird for 20 years and never see one. But if you are able to identify them by the sounds that they make, you identify them every time you go out. And so what we're finding is we're finding in our region that there is a significantly larger uh, number of these birds, these secretive wetland birds. 
And what we've done is we trained volunteers, um, some of whom maybe worked for Boeing or you know, some of whom are local high, high school teachers, to be able to go out into the field, run through the protocol, do it accurately and identify those birds um, with, with great, great consistency, with better consistency than a few of our ornithological PhDs. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that data becomes extremely valuable because there was training put into place to make sure that these volunteers, the, the, these community scientists know uh, how to collect that data, how to do it accurately, and how to be honest with themselves uh, to say, I don't know. I heard something. I'm not sure if that was accurate and not recording it, um, you know, as a definitive, um, you know, bird in the field. You know, being able to have that judgment is something that you can teach. You can teach people to do even if they don't have, um, a, 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 per se, a, a university degree uh, in that type of science. And harnessing that field of community volunteers um, really, really extends the reach of the data that we can collect. A classic case is eBird. Um, you know, I'm sure that you're familiar with eBird and um, eBird is a vast data set. Now that's not to say that, that um, uh, you know, something like a purple finch doesn't appear on the rare bird report here every now and again. A purple finch is one of our more common birds that we see in the region. You know, and, and of course that happens. It's AI, it's gonna make mistakes. But there is a vast data set um, being collected in eBird that if you are a numbers person, you can actually pick apart and parse really, really interesting information from that data set. But it really is um, a huge community effort. In order to be able to analyze that data, you need people who are more GIS experts or big data experts per se um, to be able to pull and glean the essential information from that data set. But you know, those are people who may not have any experience identifying birds in the field. Uh, you, you may be able to show them a picture of a, um, you know, a robin and they wouldn't know what it is, uh, except that they've seen one in the garden, but they can extract from that, that mass data set really, really uh, interesting things that we might not perceive when we're in the field, or we may perceive in the field, but we may not understand. Let's maybe jump over then to talk a bit more about what the Tahoma Audubon Society does. So you've mentioned um, a few of the citizen science, community science projects that you've got going on. Well, we have a few projects going right now. Um, one of our, our most exciting projects is the, the bird banding project that we have. We have two different uh, studies going on. We have the, the MAPS, which is Monitoring Avian Productivity and Survivorship uh, Study, and that's run by the... Um, Institute for Bird Populations in Petaluma, California, in partnership with the United States Geological Survey. So that is a continent-wide study of breeding birds. That happens, you know, during the breeding season, during the summer. Now, the reason why I mentioned that first is because um, both that project and the other banding project that we do out there are mostly done by community science people, but people who have been through a rigorous training course which isn't a degree program, but um, uh, uh, there may be times when some of them might swear that it's harder. We have um, another project that's going on at the banding station, which is a little more specific, and that's a year-round program. We're working on it right now. Uh, that's that's a project in which we're we're looking at um, at being able to more accurately age some local species that we notoriously make errors on during the breeding season. And so, being able to go back and look at how their feathers age over time and how their soft uh, body part colors change 
one of the frustrations that we've had with, with certain species, like with the Dunnock in England, this was, was a maddening case for me and is what sort of got me interested in, in doing a study real similar to the one that we're doing here, is um, people would say that Dunnocks of a certain age would have clay-colored eyes. What I wanted is I wanted it to be quantified. I mean, what is clay-colored in CMYK? And I thought about that for ages. Being a photographer, I work in Photoshop quite a bit, and there are tools in Photoshop to measure color temperature. I'm like, ah, there it is. And so with this project that we're doing here, we are looking at at color temperatures and using that to quantify the age of birds in in hand, uh, birds that we mark when they're birds of known age, basically in their hatching year. We know that they're hatching year birds, so we know that if we mark them in their hatching year, every time that we catch them consecutively, we're going to be able to know the exact age of that bird, or at least, you know, within a week or two. And so, you know, now we have a set of birds out there that are birds of known age, and we recapture them as often as we can, and we can measure the changes in those those color temperatures. And so we can quantify this data that both in England and here in North America, in the reference materials that we use in the field, refer to them by, by generally vague terms. Those two bird bending projects, would you say that they're kind of the more advanced community science projects that you've got going on? And are there more beginner friendly ones? Yes. Okay. So the banding projects are definitely for people who are a little older. There, there are two things in those projects that, that are important. One is manual dexterity. The second is judgment and um, being able to make decisions in stressful situations quickly based on experience. And that's something that takes a bit of time uh, to gather. So that's why I think it probably isn't appropriate for really young people to be doing. But it's fascinating for really young people. And I love having young people at the banding station because, um, you know, the ooh-ah moments are frequent and, and fast. And, and uh, so we really enjoy that. Other things that we have going is the Christmas bird count. That's a classic Audubon thing. It takes place uh, all over the world. And um, it's a lot of fun. Christmas bird count is a day when we all get together and we go out in our community and we count all the birds that we can see and all, well, no, all the birds that we can identify because we do a lot of it by ear. You know, more than a hundred years ago, it was the tradition for people to go out uh, during the Christmas holiday season and uh, to shoot as many birds as they could. And the winner was the one who shot the most robins per se. Uh, you know, it was a bit of a competition. Finally, some people, some bird people were like, hey, wait a minute, we don't have to shoot them. Let's go out and just count them. And, uh, and that, that became the Christmas count. It was sort of a pushback against, uh, you know, the, the, the mass killing of, of birds during the holiday season. And what we do is uh, you know, the count circles are, uh, you know, there's a defined area that each Audubon will set. And within that circle, we go out in teams and we count all the birds that we can find. We start at sunrise or even a little bit before, although you can start at midnight. It's the 24 hours of the count, the Christmas count day. Audubon puts a, you know, an outer limit on Christmas counts. They happen all throughout uh, sort of December and a bit into January. But that's um, an activity that anybody can participate in. Different groups may have different requirements for your your level of experience or skill. Uh, Ours does not. We invite everybody to come out and we look at it as sort of an interesting social day. Uh, a day to allow new people to experience what it is to go out on birding and the joy of, of having birded a full year. 
So Christmas Count is coming right up. You can join a Christmas Count in your area by contacting your local Audubon. It's interesting that a lot of the community science events that uh, the Tahoma Audubon is involved in also kind of act as community engagement projects. Does the Tahoma Audubon Society do other community engagement um, work? Field trips are one of our big, big draws, our big connections with the community and in connecting community members together. A lot of us, a lot of our membership sees us, you know, primarily as a bird club. And, and I would say further as, as a nature club. You know, I mean, there are a lot of us who appreciate butterflies or appreciate mushrooms. And we have that in common with a lot of other Tahoma Audubon members. Birds are the thread that, that weave us all together. But a lot of the other nature areas that we have interest in overlap. And a lot of the times, I mean, certainly my bird walks, you know, I don't know if you want to call it devolve or evolve into, you know, uh, fungus appreciation uh, walks, uh, especially as it gets later in the day and there are fewer birds around. We, we find other things to appreciate, you know, identifying all the different furs of Washington, especially if we go up higher into the mountains, you know, uh, we can argue about that for hours. Um, so there's a lot uh, that, that we appreciate. And these field trips really, really um, give us an opportunity to get together and get excited with our, with our neighbors and with our colleagues and to introduce people who maybe haven't done some of these things, you know, to introduce them to some of the things that we love and allow them to connect on their own. In the past, what would these field trips have looked like? Like, were they like very planned or is it a bit more like a, a meetup? Like we're going to go and look for something in this particular area, but it's, it's kind of like a nature walk. We're just going to see what we see. Um, or is it much more planned and, and sort of structured than that? Do you have like a timetable of, right, we're going to do this and this and this? You know, it, it depends. It depends a lot on the field trip leader and the focus of the field trip. You know, on the soft end, uh, you know, once a month I do feeder watch at, at the Audubon Center. And, um, you know, I just bring out a bunch of chairs and a bunch of, you know, binoculars. And anybody who wants to show up can sit. Sometimes, you know, I, we watch the birds at the feeder. So, you know, it's, it's a very predictable sort of set of birds. And it's really more of an opportunity to talk. It gives me an opportunity to, you know, as president to hear what people's thinking uh, is about about different different topics um, and to sort of talk about whatever people want to. It's really, really informal and it's very, very relaxed. Um, we have other field trips. We, we've, uh, we had a Cape May field trip scheduled earlier this year. You know, we, we do a few international field trips and those are very, very, very scheduled. You know, every hotel, every meal, every activity, the guides are planned, you know, and those are, are much, much more rigorous and involved and address uh, and target a more advanced uh, bird group. Our general walks, you know, we have some like the Point Rustin walk, uh, which is a favorite where everyone meets, uh, you know, at a certain spot and, um, and wanders and keeps an eye on the water and, uh, you know, and in, in the bushes and they, they get a great bird list. They generally generally focus on birds, but I know that um, you know orcas and humpback whales and gray whales are very much a possibility from where they're walking, and and so those will certainly be looked for. And uh, you know those those field trips are are led by an incredible naturalist uh, and very 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 experienced birder, um, but they're open to all levels and inviting to all levels. And so you know whether you're a beginner or a very advanced birder, you'll feel comfortable in the group. And there is very much that awareness in most of our field trips to be inclusive, to make it so that it feels comfortable for everyone, no matter what their skill level is. Usually on those field trips, everybody gets to learn something. 
most of our field trips sort of fit into that um, that group. You know, in the um, you know in the spring we have um, a group that will head over the mountains out into the sagebrush to um, to see the you know the prairie chickens and uh, you know some of the uh, uh, the really great birds that we get in eastern Washington, which is a completely different ecosystem than we have here. There are other field trips that maybe are specifically targeting certain species or a certain list of species or a region. Those are definitely a little more geared toward the advanced uh, birder. All of our field trips, um, you know, in our calendar uh, sort of uh, give the, um, the range of, of birders that will feel comfortable. I mean, nobody's going to give you a bird quiz before you uh, uh, go on any yeah, of the field yeah. trips. And if you're a beginning birder and you want to tag along with the more experienced birders because you think that's a better learning environment, you're by all means welcome to do that. But it, it's nice to have a, a range of expectation so that people can join a field trip in which they're going to feel comfortable, in which they're going to feel like the growth and the learning is at a pace that that is comfortable for them. And that's what we really aim to do because our field trips are supposed to be uh, enjoyable. Do you have any particular strategies for dealing with that? Because you you mentioned something that has sparked something for me here, where I'm sure you're familiar from from your time over here in London, where if you ask someone if they're a birder, being a birder has a very particular meaning, a meaning over here in the UK, where you're probably a bit more intense, shall we say, than like a casual person who's out going bird watching. Being a birder is something a little bit different, but you know you've got these different levels of uh, how engaged and the way in which you engage with these birds and they can come into conflict, you know? So if you're a bit more of an intense bird watcher, you're, you're not always so pleased when you see a, a bunch, like a family come along. D- do you have any particular strategies for dealing with potential conflict or is it, is it down to making it kind of clear what kind of field trip it is so that people kind of self-select and say, okay, this is a trip that I'm going to be comfortable on. Yeah, that's a really good question, Victor. Um, I, I think, um, uh, you know, I'm wading into into the perils of, of you know, the boiling lake here. Um, I, I, I think that one thing that's really, really different here in North America, and although I can't speak for North America, I just got back from Cape May, and that was a whole different experience than I'm used to. Um, but, you know, having gone through the evolution, you know, having been a beginner bird watcher and then an intermediate bird watcher and then a more advanced bird watcher and then an ear birder and then a twitcher and then not a twitcher. Um, you know, I've gone through the whole cycle. Um, I have to say one thing I noticed while I was in England, and this may be spot on or it may be quite far off, um, is that over in England, people tend to be very club oriented per se. I, you know, I, I did notice um, when I was in London that, you know, when I would go out to popular birding spots, there is definitely a hierarchy, especially in hides. And this is something that, you know, we don't have a lot of hide birding here in, in certainly in the Northwest. I mean, it probably would be nice because we'd get out of the rain, but we don't tend to have that. And so, Birding tends to be a little more of a, a wander about. And so we don't get concentrated in the same sort of way. And so we don't seem to have the same hierarchy that I noticed in England. That said, we do have, you know, our strata of, of bird experiences. But I think because we don't tend to be congregated quite in the same places in the same way, you know, the advanced birders tend to call each other and they tend to go out together. 
And, you know, they, so they're, you know, you're less likely if you're a beginning birder to be going out with an advanced birder unless they're your buddy. The field trips are one of those places where that can get concentrated. We do advertise, as I said, that, you know, the sort of expected experience level for that field trip. And I think because the the strata aren't maybe nearly as stratified um, as I noticed in England, I think we don't run into quite as much of a conflict between the experienced birders and the less experienced birders, at least on a field trip that says all levels invited. If you go as a very experienced birder, you know, I think you would well expect that you'll have people who maybe aren't as experienced, that it can be a learning experience together. I also tend to think that more advanced birders wouldn't necessarily go on as many of those field trips. Uh, they would be more interested in the field trips that specifically target things that they're interested in, like, you know, going over the over the mountains uh, to catch the breeding sage grouse. It's interesting that you mentioned the hides and the difference that creates, because that is definitely something where, at least at a lot of the sites that I've I've visited over here, it, it definitely can be kind of the thing where the really intense birders who are there for, for a particular thing, they will go to the hides and they just hang out in the hides and they've got a like a route that they follow. Um, but because you're stopping and spending time in places that are like congregating spots in the landscape for people, so you end up with your more general visitor who might just be there to have a nice walk outside, they're going to pop into the hides perhaps. And then suddenly then you you bring in uh, the the design of the site kind of brings these different groups together. And perhaps in some cases that can be a good thing, but perhaps it also generates conflict that you don't see if it's just an open landscape. There's not like these five spots where everyone goes and spends a significant amount of time because that's where there's a hide with a bench in it. Once I, once I learned to go out to a hide and go in there and sit down and just shut up, I learned a lot, you know, because, you know, Americans, I think, are a little more willing to, to talk to each other. I, I'm not sure, but, you know, um, I, you know, certainly if I wandered into a hide here, I'd talk to everybody. And, uh, you know, it's funny, actually, I, I, I did wander into a bit of a hide in Cape May um on this last trip and i realized that i'd become very british i didn't want anybody to talk to me i didn't want to talk to anybody when the kids came in i was a little <laughs> irritated and you know put on my cold shoulder um you, you, you know what i mean i mean some some of those habits that i that i picked up uh but at the same time you know what i i think when i when i finally went into the hides and got quiet and listened to other people you realize that there are some master birders and there are some people who have sat in that particular hide for hours a day, you know, thousands of hours a year for decades. And they really know, you know, what's going on on that little patch. And that was a level of, you know, naturalist knowledge that I hadn't really encountered in a lot of places, um, you know, and now that I'm tuned into it, I do see it more uh, over here. There are people who really, really know their local patch. You know, patch birding was, was a term that I'd never heard until I'd gone to England. And um, it has a lot of value. Um, you know, when we were talking a little bit about community science, you know, if you really want to know what the trends are in a place, go find a local patch birder and they can tell you, you know, mm -hmm. because they have been there and they've been, they've spent the time and they know what's going on. And even if they are a local patch birder, they know what's going on with the otters. They know what's going on with the butterfly. You know, they've seen it because they've spent the time you know, sitting there and watching. And, uh, you know, that in itself is is a meditation, you know, a nature reflection, a connection 
with nature. It's just a different kind of thing than 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 what everybody experiences, you know, uh, when they go out into nature. It's it's a real specific type of thing, and it's extremely valuable. Um, I think the the hardest part though is is um, um, you know sort of getting to the point where you can connect in to that knowledge base. Um, you know, I found that really difficult to do in England. It took a while. It took a while of sitting in those hides quietly and listening before people were like, you know, I mean, I was given, I was given a lot of forgiveness and, you know, a little bit of the, the card blanche. Oh, he's the American. He's going to talk for a while. He'll, <laughs> he'll settle down eventually. And then we can all get back to business, you know, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, so I feel very, very grateful for that. Um, but I think that, you know, here, um, I, I don't see quite as much of it, you know, um, maybe it's because we're all talking all the time, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I think, um, the important thing, you know, especially I think if you are an experienced person and that you do, um, spend a lot of time connecting with nature is to do is, is, you know, it, it's a little bit like, you know, um, like giving to charity, you know, every once in a while, it's really, really important to give back, you know, and to recognize that, yeah, you've spent the time, sure, you know, and you've made the effort. And, you know, sometimes, you know, at, at personal sacrifice, you know, those days that you sat, you know, eight hours in the cold, you know, just hoping to see this one little thing, um, you know, you spent your time, sure, but it doesn't really hurt to share that you know, with the family that just came in or to show them the bittern that's out there in the, on the edge of the reed bed, because, you know, you may, in fact, you know, inspire the next generation um, of naturalists. You may make a connection um, or you may not. You may just, you know, um, you know, you, you may not. You never know. You never know. But, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to give a little bit back. Um, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of spread that joy that you've been able to enjoy for, for all those years, I think. That's something that whenever I, I do these interviews, I always think back to the very first episode I did um, back with uh, my, my co-host at the time there. And we were looking at what gets people into nature. And there's quite a few papers out that really talk about the role that having an interested adults in your like being around an adult who's interested in a subject can really shape your experience of it so i can really imagine you know an experienced birder who's been who's been coming and visiting the site getting to know the nature there sharing the experience then their interest and their passion for that site with another person having that kind of interaction really sparking a similar reaction in them and in building up that attachment to the site which is so important to becoming connected to nature so i think it's that is a really good point to remember once you get talking to someone who genuinely is interested suddenly you know it's nice to talk to a person who's interested in the the things that you're interested in and even if you're not quite feeling it starting that conversation can can get you in the mood to have that conversation and who knows what impact you'll have on that person in the end you know it, it could be quite significant I agree, but but I also, you know, I also think that it's important to respect the fact that, you know, sometimes we, I mean, nature is is our own meditation, you know, and uh, and it's it's very much that for me, you know, that a lot of the times I bird alone, you know, I don't tend to be uh, a field trip participator very often because uh, it is my time that I've carved out for myself, and I take my binoculars and I go up the hill into the woods here, and I, you know, I um. 
I, I like that time to be quiet and I like to move at my own pace. And, uh, you know, there are some days when I go up there to bird the heck out of the forest, you know, I want to see every bird and identify everything that, you know, uh, you know, oh, the shaking of that branch, it, you know, it's, it's going to be a Wilson's warbler. I know it, you know, and, you know, to identify things by, you know, the sound of their breath at the top of the trees. Um, but there are a lot of times when I go up there and I'm like, oh, I'm bird watching. But I realize that I've been sitting on that log for a half an hour. I haven't, you know, I've completely tuned out and I've been watching the moss, you know, <laughs> and I mean, I, it just, you know, it, it, it's important to respect the fact that sometimes people are in their own meditation and they're in their own zone. And that, you know, that that allowing them to sort of have that moment uh, is important. You know, I think that, um, you know, with high birding, it was difficult for me to understand that that was the case for, you know, a lot of um, more, I mean, for some of the more experienced birders, that that was their quiet time. So, you know, you have to kind of leave them to it. Um, and uh, it's, it's difficult um, to remember that sometimes, but, you know, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, while it is important to share um, and to connect uh, and to help people who maybe don't connect, you know, as environmental educators, I think, you know, you and I are committed to it. You know, if I see something cool, I want to share it. Um, but sometimes I don't, you know, sometimes I just want to, you know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just want to do your own thing. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's something where there, there really is that full spectrum of different ways of interacting and, you know, the different relationships with the natural world. And it's something that I think as educators, it's something that we need to remember to, to instill in, in people in our practice as well is just, um, is the fact that there is that full, full scale. And I think depending on the institutions we work for, they can have a really heavy focus in one particular way of doing it, you know, be it a really science focused lens, or maybe at another place, it's really about, you know, having those really mindful connections with nature. But, uh, and then in the programming that you run, you kind of can end up devaluing the other ways of, of relating to the natural world. And I think it's, it's something to, to bear in mind when you're thinking about the programming that you have on offer and the, the way in which you think about the way the space is used to, to see how broad a range you can actually accommodate. Um, I think that that is also important to remember, you know, you're absolutely right. I think a challenge that we have, um, with an organization like Tahoma Audubon is, um, well, I mean, number one, it's COVID right now, so we're really limited. But number two, we're you know we're a volunteer organization, um, so we we don't have a vast number of people to make things happen. So sometimes you know we think, wow, it'd be really great. You know, we are a bird organization, but butterflies are so cool, and it's only a half a channel away from bird watching. It would be great to do a butterfly walk, but. Finding somebody who knows butterflies well enough to feel confident enough to go out to lead a walk can be a challenge. The other challenge that we have is that birding traditionally attracts a certain demographic. And, you know, it tends to be wealthy, older white people and, um, you know, uh, here in our community. And so that's been a real challenge for us is to find ways to make it so that, um, you know, I look at, I look at the what i call the christmas count circle which is really our coverage area as an organization and i look at you know what the demographics of our community actually is versus what the demographics of the people that i see participating in our activities is and i see a disparity that i don't like 
And so as president, it's been something that I've really been in trying to actively work on, you know, since I've got since I've gotten started. I mean, not just me, but we as an organization are very much trying to to figure out how to make our our activities more not just more accessible, more inviting to our community, the community that is um, is our community. And so that's been a real challenge going forward. And it's something that I hope that we can we can uh, be successful on, you know, at over the next few years. But, you know, once again, it's about, you know, understanding how people connect to nature because everybody does it in a different way. And we've already touched on quite a bit of that in the course of our conversation. And so, you know, um, what are the ways that our community, the people that live near us, connect with nature or, or haven't yet found a way to connect with nature? And what do we do to facilitate that, to make it so that our nature, which is all around us, is more accessible and more noticed by um, by our community. And I think that we can do that. But I just, I just think that, that that is a particular challenge that we've been working on and are con- going to continue to work on, you know, in the years to come. It's a slow process, but we're, we're, we're doing it. Um, let's take one final spin back to, towards the, the science side of it it's on the topic of d- diseases and, and whatnot. I, I know that in the uh, Northwest, in, in the area there, there was a, an outbreak of salmonella amongst the birds and it was the advice was for people to actually take down bird feeders. And people are ad- often advised to regularly wash their bird feeders. I would imagine that probably quite a few of us, myself included, do not do it particularly frequently because we don't really think of animals as getting sick and diseases from visiting a bird feeder. Um, could, could you give us a breakdown of, of what was going on? Oh, well, that's a really complicated question. So I think the first thing that we need to start with is to remember that, you know, when we talk about the United States, um, we're talking about a vast, vast amount of space. So it's really, really hard to make generalizations. I think that, um, you know, the summer salmonella outbreak, if, if I if I have read correctly, um, was sort of more in the upper Midwest. Um, we had what we were considering to be a, a salmonella outbreak uh, here last winter, um, you know, through the winter and into the spring, into the early spring. There's a lot more that's unknown about zoonotic diseases and feeders than there is. I, I had an article come across my desk this actually this week. I haven't read through the whole thing. I skimmed it briefly. And it was about how um, there was a study done, I believe maybe in the Netherlands. It was somewhere over in Europe. Uh, there was a study done about salmonella transfer between birds at feeders. And it was saying that there's no evidence of, um, of the transfer of salmonella or some other zoonotic diseases through the feeders. Um, what I can tell you is that we, um, we had an eruption of, of, um, of pine siskins last winter. So, you know, an eruption is when vast numbers of them leave their, their normal overwintering territory because of a reduction in the food supply or a mass increase in the population. There are several different things that cause eruptions. And so we suddenly had, um, massive numbers of pine siskins at feeders down here. Since uh, finches in general tend to be feeder cluster birds, they tend to come to feeders and they come in mass. They're usually, um, you know, a, a really good indicator species. And I can tell you that at my feeders here, um, at a couple points early in the winter, I did see birds that appeared not to be as well 
I called around and I talked to the state biologist uh, or one of the one of the, the junior state biologists um, in Oregon. I mean, we talked to the Washington state biologist who then referred us off to Oregon. Uh, uh, she had some really interesting things to say about um, about zoonotic diseases and how quick they affect the birds. You know, it's um, a lot of people say, oh, well, what about if I clean my feeders every other week? Some of the recommendations are, you know, what, you know, you clean them every 10 days, 14 days, or every time you fill them or every other time you fill them. What the biologist was telling us about the progression of salmonella in these finches is that, you know, they, they show signs of illness like within, now, now, you know, I mean, I would say don't quote me, but we're, we're in radio here. So, um, but, you know, the, the duration was really, really short and it was something like 18 to 24 hours and the birds are dead within 48 hours. Now, please, once again, remember that I'm doing this from memory. The actual numbers may have been slightly different, but um, the progression of the disease in the bird is extremely quick. So, you know, from the moment that the bird gets the disease until it's dead are, uh, is, is a very, very short amount of time. And that cleaning your bird feeders every other week is not going to minimize that infection if you've just cleaned it and then a bird with salmonella applies it to your feeder perches and then another bird picks it up within a few hours you know how many times can that happen before you get around to cleaning the feeders again um i think the recommendation to clean your feeders is always always a good call um and you know the idea of you know soap and water sure what I was doing with mine um, early in the winter last year was um, washing them with soap and water, letting them completely dry, and then dipping them in a um, you know a bleach and water solution, like you know like you would do with, with uh, you know water bottles or anything else you wanted to sterilize, mm-hmm. and then letting them dry and then putting them out. It was around midwinter when I started to see you know a few more birds that didn't look well at my feeders, and I took them down. Um, I just figured I didn't really want to be a vector for disease transmission. And then, you know, later on, as I did more research into it uh, and, and looked a little more deeply and read a few papers or several papers about, you know, zoonotic disease transmission, what I came up with is I really don't know. But what I do know is that I don't feel like I need to take the risk here at my house in, uh, you know, causing the transfer of diseases. Mm-hmm. So the, the jury's a bit out on what role, if any, fears play in that kind of outbreak that might occur between birds we're talking about here, because this isn't transfer between animals to peoples in this particular instance. On the topic of, of feeders, then there's the the other thing that I've been coming across. There's There's been a couple of papers that have come out this year that were kind of interesting to think about uh, in terms of the impact that feeders have on populations of different types of bird, which I found really interesting because I, I think it's a general like, oh, if you want to help wildlife, one of the things you could do is like get a bird feeder and put out a bird feeder. And that's a great way of helping wildlife um, is like a very common message that's out there. And I think in urban areas, in some ways it's true. However, what one of these papers was pointing out was that not all birds will use a bird feeder. And so when we're putting out a bird feeder, we're really only supporting a very narrow spectrum of the population. And that might have unforeseen consequences to the broader population. Like, you know, um, we might be helping generalists outcompete the specialists because you know they're able to get this supplemental food from our bird feeders and then go off and compete with them elsewhere so there's an interesting um broader picture to to look at when you're you're thinking about putting out bird feeders is 
why are you doing it and, and what level of, of care are you able to put into doing things like cleaning the bird feeders if you want to be particularly careful about making sure that you know birds have a clean place to eat from? You know, it's interesting, Victor. I, I, um, I, I agree with a lot of that. And um, well, I think, okay, a couple things. First off, the connection with nature, I think, is a big part of, you know, putting out a bird feeder, you know, um, that for me, I like having the bird feeders here because I like, um, you know, the connection with the birds. I like seeing them, at, you know, on my on my deck and watching them interact with each other. Um, I do usually get the same species. So I think that, you know, there may be something to the fact that, you know, I am helping the juncos outcompete the towhees, for example, and I don't really know. But one of the interesting things that I used to think about my feeders is I used to think, well, one of the things that I, I would hear from people is, oh, if you have the free feeders up, you need to keep feeders up because if you take them down, those birds are dependent upon your feeder. Uh, they're going to starve or they're going to they're going to suffer. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've heard that numerous different places and lots of people have mentioned it to me. Um, well, last winter, when we had this this um, eruption of, of siskin, I thought that I, I would um, would catch some of the birds on my deck and ban them because I I wanted to I wanted to know where these birds were coming from. You know, with an eruption, they could come from anywhere. I mean, our birds might have come from as far as Saskatchewan or Manitoba or more likely, uh, you know, from you know south central Alaska and maybe the coast of British Columbia. Um, we had no idea where they were coming from, and there's no way to tell unless you put a band on them and somebody picks them up somewhere else. So I figured, well, uh, the best thing to do is to catch as many as I can, put some bands on them, and hope that maybe over the course of the next year or two, I'll get a, a call from some researcher in northern Canada who's like, ah, yeah, we caught one of your birds up in the Yukon. Um, you know, so uh, so it was really more of a curiosity but in the process, um, uh, while I have not yet had a recovery for any siskin, and I probably won't ever, um, one of the interesting things that we did find out was um, on the very first day, we, uh, I, so, so at my feeders, I have um, two types of chickadees. You know, you've seen them come in and come out. Uh, we have chestnut back chickadees and black cap chickadees, and they're lovely birds. And in my you know, my ignorant uh, opinion, I thought, oh, well, I'm getting, you know, what, seven to 10 chickadees. And they just keep coming to my feeders and they steal all the seeds and they take them and they stash them somewhere. And, you know, they, you know, I've got nut hatches too, right? Nut hatches are known for doing that. And I figured it was probably the same two nut hatches and the same 10 chickadees that kept coming back and forth to my feeder all day long. When I um, went out there to ban them, the first day I caught, uh, what, 35 chestnut back chickadees, banded them all and let them go. And then went back out the next day and caught another 25 to 30. I can't remember exactly. It might've been 27 or 28 of which only five were previously banded. Suddenly, you know, the aha moment hit, you know, the, uh, oh, it's not the same 12 chickadees. It's the same 120 chickadees that are coming in and out of the feeder so then what I started doing is I set up the scope here in, in my office and, uh, and I just sort of watched and I started counting how many of the chickadees that appeared at the feeders were actually banded. And it was between five and 10%. After a while, it became evident that, that those chickadees were just passing through. And so then, of course, you know, uh, doing things backwards in science, like I always do, it's like, oh, I guess it's time for a lit review, which I maybe should have done before I started. But uh, anyway, so then, you know, I got online and 
you know, got on Mendeley and started pulling up some research papers and, you know, came to find out what I should have suspected early on, which is that they cycle through the neighborhood and they might go from feeder up to the forest and then down to another feeder and then over to the next forest and they may forage on insects for a while. And, you know, they're really diverse feeders. It doesn't make a lot of sense strategically for a chickadee to only have one source of food. And chickadees know that and they've evolved you know, to be aware of the fact that having a diverse, multiply sourced, um, you know, diet to forage through during the day provides them with a lot of opportunity. The feeders are really just a small part of, um, of you know, their food choices for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the connection with nature is more valuable that if you want to put up a bird feeder, you know, I, I think it's a great thing. Uh, I don't think that it has a, a significant impact um, you know, on, um, on the birds, but I'm also speaking from, you know, I live in a rural environment in which, you know, the next feeder is probably, you know, a quarter mile away. So, you know, there's, you know, at at the closest, so, you know, there's, there's, um, it's a different experience than, you know, in an urban area in which every house may have a hummingbird feeder. I can imagine, you know, maybe a a kid gets really worried that like, oh no, if we don't fill up the bird feeder, the birds are going to starve because there's no food for them. And they always come and eat it from our bird feeder. But it, it sounds like for, depending on your context, you know, if you're in an area with more sort of open natural habitat, the birds that are f- coming to your feeder probably do have those other, those other sources of food, as you were mentioning, but in an, a more urban environment, there may not be that same availability of food. So it may be that actually the bird feeders are a fairly significant chunk because there isn't within a relatively close distance, those other places where they could go and easily forage for places. Like I'm thinking of, you know, very urban sort of central London area where there's really not very much that you've got big trees and stuff around, but that's not going to provide the same variety of food that a proper woodland would have. So interesting to think about the relative role of bird feeders in different contexts. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that, that um, um, you know, being uh, conscientious and aware is really, really important. And um, I think that, you know, further study is certainly needed, um, you know, on, on the impacts of urban feeders, um, for sure, I think that um, there were a couple of uh, papers that I that I saw when I was over there studying about um, overwintering birds, uh, chiff chaff, I think in particular, or or something something else. Chiff chaff don't go to feeders, do they? Uh, I can't remember, but it was something that was suddenly overwintering that normally it overwintered in Europe that was now holding on in uh, oh black caps. That's what it was. Um, and uh, uh, that they were they were able to overwinter because um, they'd been able to show that it was because of um, um, urban feeders that made it so that they were able, able to, to stick around through the winter. You know, I think that's important. But I think going back to the, the origin of the discussion, one of the really important things to do is that if you put a feeder out is to be deliberate about it. You know what I mean? Um, if you put it out there. You know, keeping it it uh, keeping it in good condition should be a primary concern. Uh, and that includes keeping the feeder as clean as it can be, uh, keeping the seed inside dry. I think that, you know, when bird seed gets wet and gets moldy, that's really, really dangerous for, for birds. Um, you know, keeping the perches clean, cleaning up underneath or making sure that you're not leaving a, leaving a lot of seed detritus all over because that can attract other pests like rats, which can spread other diseases, you know. So, you know, you want to be conscientious about it. And I think that if you are, you can make, uh, or you can have a really, really nice connection with your, your local wildlife. One of the things that I do here is um, I've got suet out all the time. I actually got a, um, uh, got a couple of woodpeckers out there now. 
I use red pepper suet, you know, because the, uh, the rodents don't like it, you know, the birds don't mind it. And so, you know, that's a one way that I can keep the, the small rodents, you know, the squirrels and the, and the mice, uh, away from the feeder. Although the other night, the raccoons, uh, uh, decided that they really were into a little bit of spicy burrito and, uh, <laughs> you know, had a good snack, uh, uh, from the hot pepper suet. So. Well, Scott, it's been so good to have this conversation with you. I mean, we've covered lots of ground, lots of different topics. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us a bit about a bit about birding generally, but and lots about the Tahoma Audubon Society. Well, thanks, Victor. It's a real honor to get to be a part of your program. I really enjoy what you're doing here. So thank you for this this chance. For detailed notes, links to any of the community science projects mentioned in the show, and links to more information about the topics we discussed, check out the full show notes at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. There you'll also find a resources section with some recommendations for excellent picture books to introduce environmental issues and spark discussion. Check out the post about Bird Boy, a lighthearted story about being yourself, imagination, and taking inspiration from birds and nature. And with that recommendation, that's the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. 